Hey there. I hope everyone is keeping well during uh, this period as we start to transition to the uh, conclusion of a very long 2020. I'm really excited about this discussion and to uh, share it with all of you. I had an opportunity to sit down with Dr. Penny Wheeler. Penny is the President and Chief Executive Officer uh, of Alina Health. Penny is uh, honestly, hands down, one of my uh, favorite hospital CEOs in the country. I've, I've only known Penny for, I think, a couple of years, but every time I've interacted with her or her staff, I walk away uh, feeling uh, energized and enthusiastic, not just about the work that they uh, do in the Minneapolis uh, region, but certainly the the things that they're learning and sharing more broadly across the country and, and their participation in particular in the Medicaid Transformation Project. Penny is a really uh, interesting personality in that she literally has spent um, her career at uh, Alina. She's a trained uh, OBGYN uh, and came up through the clinical pathway at Alina and then uh, over time has worked herself into administration and now has the top job for the system. Penny brings a remarkable amount of compassion, empathy, and just a sincere sense of caring for uh, the community in which uh, she lives and has lived for much of her life and the people that inhabit it. So I think you're really going to enjoy the conversation. We have an opportunity to I uh, spent a lot of time talking about uh, some of the dynamics around the George Floyd murder earlier in the year and the uh, civic unrest that followed and a uh, litany of different things that span across the, the socioeconomic spectrum that Alina Health gets up and thinks about every day. So I enjoyed the discussion. Penny, thank you so much for uh, jumping on, and it's great to have the conversation. Tell me how you are. Tons has obviously happened in your city in, in a very short period of time, and if you might just start by giving our listeners a, a state of the landscape. It's good to be with you, David. So thank you for this opportunity. I think that all healthcare organizations are going through quite a bit where we've had to bulk up for the virus of unknown load for the community's health and unknown ramp up prepare the staff, get the right equipment, get the right space needed to prepare for what our community needs. One of my leaders on my team said, gosh, I don't know, does it get any harder than this? And then George Floyd was killed, only blocks away from our corporate headquarters and our largest medical facility. And we had another conversation after that. And she said, yes, it does. It does get harder than this. So I think we're dealing with a COVID pandemic and then our eyes are wider open to the racial pandemic that exists there too. So layer on layer of crisis has rocked us and hopefully we can do something and we need to. What are the key things you think have to happen in Minneapolis, whether it's criminal justice reform, health reform, or, or some mashup of a lot of things to really put the city on a different footing? Yeah, uh, thanks for the question. It's, it's one that's at the heart of everything we're trying to do and maybe paint a, painting a picture uh, first as to what the unrest looked to us as an organization. We were only a few blocks uh, from the murder site and we were right on Lake Street, which was ground zero for uh, a lot of the civil unrest that occurred. 
And so our headquarters being right there, we also had a warehouse that was between that and our largest medical center that was right there. It was housing all our personal protective equipment. And then we had uh, nearly 500 patients in our largest medical center. So you can imagine that this time of the unrest where many hundreds of buildings uh, were burned as part of the not as peaceful protests, there were many peaceful protests, but not as peaceful protests, including really the vast majority of buildings around our, our corporate headquarters. There was burning down of the third precinct um, building of the police um, in Minneapolis, and that occurred from across the street from one of our clinics. So it was really near and dear to, to our hearts, I think, and to the neighborhood in which we work with and love, frankly. So uh, difficult. That uh, the weekend, uh, the, the Thursday and Friday and Saturday where the unrest was greatest, we had to call into action a lot of things quickly. We had, to, we had to remove pallet after pallet of our personal protective equipment, which has become gold during this pandemic. We had to relocate about 100 patients um, for safety concerns from our largest hospital. Um, we had to call on every favor possible to get some National Guard protection to those sites. So it was a, it was a wild uh, time. And then, of course, we were worried about the gathering, understandable gatherings. In fact, our employees live in this neighborhood, uh, too, and support all of uh, what we want to do well. So we were concerned about, gosh, would those gatherings result in, you know, more uh, COVID exposure for people? And what would that mean to us? So just to paint the picture of what, what is, I think what's happened since is we've tried to both organizationally and as a community open up broad dialogue is like, as one of uh, our board members said, we had quiet in this community before, but we haven't had peace. Meaning we need to have the very difficult dialogue and the commensurate actions to address some of the racial pandemic that exists there in a significant way. And I will say, from, they're from all sectors, uh, from business sectors, from public sectors, from not-for-profit sectors like ours, there has been a call to action like none I've ever seen, like energy I've not seen. So I really do think energy and resolve to get through COVID in the right way, sure, but also to actually address in a deep way, like in a commitment way, you know, the ecosystem and to address the systemic racism that exists, I would say there's a resolve like no other time in our community to do just that. When you feel that this is a different level of resolve, what makes you feel that? And, and, and what changes do you think this could be catalytic to? Or, or, or where do you see evidence that it is acting as a catalyst to real change? First of all, we've been on this path and many healthcare organizations are on, on solving the inequities and the disparities in healthcare. We located our headquarters in one of the most challenged areas of Minneapolis for a reason, uh, because we wanted to be committed to that neighborhood and actually help support it in the best possible way. So we had a 10-year program called the Backyard Project, which actually worked with community and community activated health action teams to actually improve the health and well-being. And we got some good results from, from that. But the whole premise and philosophy was that health is improved through community connections. So that was the premise of that um, backyard project. And I guess I see the difference now is that we worked and did some good work on that end, but it doesn't necessarily solve some of the job issues. It didn't necessarily solve some of the policing issues. It didn't necessarily solve some of the educational disadvantages and those kinds of things. The difference I see now is that there's 
actually broad groups of people that are looking at the whole ecosystem involved to deal with the systemic racism that exists and going after it. So nobody is looking at just their slice of things. They're looking at how actually how do they connect all these swim lanes together for something that's going to take a lot of staying power for sure, because these things have come and go with energy. But actually, there's so many more different people coming together, whether it be our business partnership partners, whether it be public uh, sectors, public-private partnerships. And now it's, uh, it's, uh, it's aligning all that work together, but it's much broader than what we can accomplish, but what can we accomplish collectively? And that's the energy I see that's different than what I've seen ever before. It's helpful and it's encouraging to hear that. I, I feel like this is probably unfairly anecdotal, but I, but I also don't think it's without merit as being kind of a, a more geographically distant observer of things that happen in Minneapolis, but frankly, things that happen in my own city of Chicago or other parts of the country. You know, this is the first time since I've had kind of a social cognition over the decades where I've seen the, the, the faces of protesters um, being more balanced um, between yeah. people of color and, and, and white people. And, and the people that I interact with on a regular basis, professionals and others have, have really started to, to ask themselves the question, okay, I know I'm not, I, I know I'm not quote unquote racist, but I know I'm also missing something here. If I can't have a level of deeper engagement in being anti-racist and really understanding the history and the intergenerational influences that have created this. So I feel like that there is a social inflection that's occurring in parts of our culture where younger people and, and others in the, in the professional system are really challenging themselves in ways that, that I've never seen. Um, and if yeah. that comports in any way with what you just said, then the combination of those things might really make this a moment. And kind of hope it is because I think boy I think you're right I mean I think you have to deal with something at a personal level on an organizational level and then a broader community level and you're right I'm seeing greater depth in all of those in fact like on the personal side we had actually a few months ago taken something called the intercultural developmental inventory to see gosh how would we worry personally along this evolution of how we saw and dealt with differences you know in, in people now, actually, after this event, our whole board of directors is going after that. As one of our board members said, I, she's a, a female leader, a previous CEO. She said, I knew what it was like to deal with gender um, discrimination, but I quite honestly don't know enough about dealing with race, ethnicity, and language issues. And how do we do that better? So the whole board now is going to take this inventory. So they look at their, you know, really take an introspective list, look at themselves personally, and are accepting that. Those are actions I just didn't see happening in the past to the degree I see it now. Let me ask you just two questions about the Backyard Project. Maybe take just a minute to talk about its genesis and what its objectives were. And, and what else will you be doing at the organizational level, given your tremendous uh, community presence and influence to really lean in through programs like that or other programs? The Backyard, I'll, I'll just give a quick primer, but was started over 10 years ago now. We had everybody gathered around the table from the community action groups to public servants, to police, to housing authorities, to all kinds of people like, how do we improve? We're in this challenge part of the cities now with our headquarters. How do we improve that which is right next to us and how do we support it? So we, as a liner, we're gonna go into it and say, okay, 
We're, we'll do a health assessment. We'll tell you what you need and then we'll help support you. And I remember an elder from the community getting up to the blackboard and saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. You don't quite get it. She said that to you, health means the absence of illness. To us means it's safety, housing, right. a roof over your head, having uh, connections in the community, having meaningful work. That's what health means. And I'll never forget it. And it's, it's said to me like, oh, wait a minute, you have to do this with community, not aside from community and thinking that you know what is best needed. So lesson learned through that. So through the backyard, then a lot of community health action teams through the Cultural Wellness Center located in South Minneapolis were put into place. And we got increasing engagement around groups, for example, coming together over how they would help support each other in managing their diabetes. So it was a fairly successful in terms of the community connections created and uh, now they have a backyard hub that continues those connections today. And through that history, I think to your point, relationships developed. So I think we got to know the community, <laughs> educated by, by Elder Azahar, who sat up there and told us what health really means. We got to know the community, be educated by them and know how best to you know, call on those relationships and to support each other. So I think those are lessons we're taking into, okay, what could we do you know, together through with other in public-private partnerships and the like to further some of that work beyond healthcare and deal with some of these underlying issues. So, so I think lessons learned through the backyard that will actually help us now as there's more energy to actually not go back again ever. So there's, there's that. So I want to take, I want to use that as kind of our central context and theme for a moment, but I'd like to examine three levels of the health system with health being defined broadly across this biopsychosocial spectrum. Let's start with a 50,000 foot view. The things that you are either observing or believe you are likely to see out of the legislature, out of payers, um, out of social, uh, other social organizations at the state level that will more deliberately marshal these resources, integrate them and deliver them in that way. Are you seeing those things actively or, or do you have hope that, that there's kind of a, a page turning? Yeah, I think we're starting to see it. I don't think we know completely what it should or needs to look like. But for example, we have a, we have a challenge with the uh, policing culture in, in Minneapolis. So the Minnesota Business Partnership with about a 30 signatories, which included me, was you know highlighted about 27 different uh, policing reforms that they promoted to the legislature during this special session. So they're, they're wrestling with some of those issues right now. We'll see uh, as we come out of COVID, how we will deal with on the public policy things, uh, for example, on things that actually export our care in a more convenient, affordable way to people, which will advantage more greatly some of the challenge communities going forward. So for example, we've had through this time a teleaddiction program, which actually helps export our expertise in addiction services right to somebody's home, saving them travel and giving them greater access. So some of the policy pieces are on the table and being wrestled with. Some are yet to come, I think, born of this time. And of course, we know that the two pandemics are interrelated, right, uh, David, because uh, COVID disproportionately affects those uh, communities of color. So there's, a, there's an overlapping Venn diagram here with probably the racial pandemic being the one that's of greater significance. 
And on, and on the payer side, I've spent a little time in recent weeks with Mark Trayton at UCARE and Craig Salmon at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Minnesota. I've come to know and appreciate those leaders as having kind of a, a common ethos to the one that you hold. What, what are you seeing from the payer community to lead with folks like you or other IDNs in the community to reorganize resources, align incentives, I mean, whatever you want to call it, are are you seeing any renewed uh, dedication and, and deliberation in that direction? Yeah, I'd say we saw that even before the COVID pandemic struck. It was really like saying, okay, we've got to do things differently. And so now we've crafted agreements and are working on crafting more agreements with our payer community, with, which leads us over a period of time to really completely shift the business model on its head paying us in a tangible way for outcomes per dollar spent and giving us the requisite tools as a healthcare organization that we need to actually be able to do that well. Things like, let's know who we're taking care of, you know, so that we can actually support them. So in novel, care. Penny, so you know, you know, so let's, uh, <laughs> yeah, let's have prospective assignment rather than finding out a year later who you took care of and who you were responsible for, which gives you no opportunity actually to support them. So, you know, I, th I, I would say, yes, much greater uptake uh, from the payer community and moving towards value. And, and boy, the economics of everything right now would look quite different if that were the case before this, right? Because part of uh, healthcare's financial, just the gravity of the financial is just hard to take in. But that would have looked different if we were paid not for just how many things we do to how many people, but how well we do them at what, and at what cost. Yeah, and, and I know it's so easy to be... Uh tongue-in-cheek about this subject because as, as, as you and I both know, you know, we, we have the answer key. We, we know what to do. It's the sociology and then to your point, the economic structure we've built around the system that keeps us stuck. Right, right. I'll have to say I got a chance to, I, I, I am friends and I hold the friendship dearly with Andy Slavitt and got a chance to talk to him and, and the current CMS administrator and, and the basic one of the questions and they appreciated reach out, but one of the questions is, how quickly should we move now? Healthcare systems are really under siege. Should we make it move more quickly to value and make it less voluntary? Or because they're under such siege, should we back off? And uh, my advice probably isn't held by all, but I'd say I think now is the time to actually double down on the changes that we need to make to make this better for all. Yeah. So, so I think that's, that's our opportunity. Well, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Let's talk a bit about the community level. You talked about the importance of CBOs and other community leaders working more collaboratively. You all, obviously, in 2017, were selected by CMS as a recipient of an Accountable Health Communities Grant. And I believe you all ended up selecting NowPow as a community referral platform. Talk just a little bit about that platform, its implementation, but, but its utility during the period of COVID, during the racial dissonance in the community, has that been a useful mechanism to bring organizations together in service of communities, or is there yet still a ways to go as we've learned so much about some of these critical community level issues? Part of that Accountable Health Communities grant had us screening individuals for food insecurity, housing needs, violence in their home, utility needs, and transportation needs. And we've screened now over 350,000 people, finding that wow. a little over a quarter, a little over a quarter of those people have one of those identified needs. 
and food being of the ones who identify needs, foods is 60% of it, so food insecurity. And so although it varies by population a little bit, so we found in the Medicare um, population, actually housing turns out to be number one. So we're learning a lot, that said. So it's been useful and we're getting you know, comments from patients saying, I knew you cared about me before, but now I know you really care about me. So I'd say that just doing the screening and identifying those needs and then connecting people to community resources has really been uh, something that looks very valuable. We're now doing the evaluation part of it. So I should be able to tell people, David, even more so in doing this in concert with the federal government, what it's meant in terms of experience of care, but also what it's meant in terms of proactively preventing a severe illness, which increases obviously the human suffering, but cost as well. So I'll, and, and as to NALPAO specifically, first of all, I would say that NALPAO has been a great partner. It's been part of a continuum because we have to realize the software isn't the thing. NALPAO's sweet spot is it connects those needs to right. community-based resources. But we had to have, you know, we had 110 people on the front line help us design what the flow would be for that. So, you know, everything from how do you talk to people about these sensitive things? to who should do the talking, to how does that screening fit in with our electronic medical record, to how do they get connected, to who needs extra services like navigation, to what, how do we make sure that the community resources are the same? And so now pause a connection piece within there, but I'd say it's part of a whole flow that we had to work with and design. I will say that now has been exceptional because you can imagine in this time of COVID, those not-for-profit community-based assets are changing too in terms of their operations and their capacity. So they've had to continually update what's been available. Like for example, what food banks are viable right now? You know, where can you get your car fixed on a, on a you know, sliding scale? You know, all those things have been rocked with the COVID virus too. And so they've been a, a really good partner at updating those so we can make sure it's reliably done. So all that to said, we think that this is a really powerful thing and we've had a very good partner in NowPow to do it with us. No, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I, too often in our field, we, we have historically looked at, at digital and technology-based solutions as some kind of a panacea without digging into the workflows, the underlying care models, those connections, partnership agreements, referral agreements. And when, when you have that machinery, when you have those mechanisms in place, an asset like NowPower, any other technology-enabled asset, can help extend the efficiency of those models, but, but we're, we're less focused to our own detriment on the models and more focused on the tech. And uh, obviously, by virtue of, of the answer you just gave, you've, you've, taken, you, you've flipped that on its head, and that sounds like it's yielding some success. Yeah, it is. And we've had to go through another big change with it because, of course, all the in-person interviewing has gone to more virtual interviewing and actually even people in their MyChart application having identifying any social health-related social needs. So, so that it continues to change as to how you best embed the technology piece into the way the workflow goes and that workflow has changed as well. Are there, are there particular communities in Minneapolis where um, you've taken a, a different or novel approach. Obviously, one, one every community has its unique features. I know Minneapolis is no exception to that. You have Somalian communities that have had higher difficulties with health, in addition to, to other communities of, of color and the like. How have, you, how have you modulated your approach to meet the needs of those communities 
while trying to have ubiquity in a platform that would you know, that would be efficient and really allow your you and your colleagues to do the work you need to do. Boy, well, that's such a great question. I think the first thing to do is just really, as as uh, Elder Ozzahar taught me, first really listen to what the what the community needs and thinks is their most important uh, piece, and then modulate your efforts towards that end. And then I think also realizing within communities, they're not homogeneous, right? Different people still have uh, different takes in different ways. But so we have done things like we uh, developed a position called a care guide. And that care guide is a non-clinically trained lay person who actually helps work with and support people and their needs. That's probably consistent to a community health worker kind of model, but that's it. And, and to understand that. And we've done that, David, uh, including cultural case care guides. So those who were of the Somali community, for example, you know, actually serving that community, understanding their needs. And I can remember a story of you know, this man kept coming in with hypertension and the doctor would say, are you taking this medication the way it's in? And he would say, yes, yes, yes. All the time that he was doing that. English was his second language. Was embarrassed to tell the doctor that he wasn't taking his medication, but he told his Somali care guide that 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 was the case. And then they overcame prescription barriers and the language barriers by having that happen. And his blood pressure has been controlled since. So those are the kinds of things that you have to think about. Okay, how do we make sure that we aren't creating, even though we have appointment availability? how aren't we creating, dealing with barriers that some people exist in that? And that was a perfect example of when we had somebody who spoke the language and was culturally sensitive and there to be the one person who continually supports somebody, you know, the trajectory of his disease and, and likely secondary complications of that was avoided. Which, which tells us that even having the right care model, the right evidence-based care model isn't even wholly sufficient if you're not actively engaging and deliberately listening to the community to unearth those stories and those anecdotes that paint a picture of what the community's real needs are. So you can have a community level approach that informs a care model approach that can enable a technology uh, approach to ultimately create that, that efficiency you need across communities. Yeah, I think that's really well said, so thank you. Well, let's, let's go one level deeper on, on the health system side, and then I want to come back to the financial picture. So one of the things I've come to really love about the Alina system and approach is you have a large team of, of care navigators that support these communities, men and women on the ground. They see patients in person. Of course, we've gone through now about a four, three or four month period where in-person interactions are not as advisable. And how have those care navigators uh, continued to, to do their work and being an important connecting point while having to comply with all of the CDC guidelines and, and other precautions needed to keep them safe. Yeah, boy, it, it might be a time that connection is needed more than ever, right? And we couldn't do the, so first of all, the care navigators come into place when somebody's identified more than one health-related social need and or they've really uh, frequented our emergency rooms or something like that, so they need an extra level of support. And uh, so they'd oftentimes uh, would, you know, meet sometimes, you know, face-to-face -face with those individuals at different uh, points in their care journey. And obviously that that's not as readily accessible now uh, with COVID. So they've been making proactive calls 
and it's really helped in ways that you, that makes sense given the isolation that's occurring. It's really helped in terms of managing isolation, anxiety, and addressing care gaps in addition. So. So that's really huge. Additionally, we use the navigators to continually update on the health-related social needs. And I think probably the most important thing, and it's back to that all of this is kind of uh, about relationships at the end of the day, is giving them a persistent and consistent point of contact. So that relationship has, you know, really held true. So I think that with the social isolation that occurs and, and with what uh, care gaps uh, are needed that the navigation actually doing more proactive reach out during this time is something that will likely continue. Uh, it's a more sustainable way to do it, you know, virtually or, or by phone than some of the traditional in-person pieces. And it has great meaning to those we're serving. So, so that's how we've done it during this time. And it's probably going to lead us to uh, more sustainable support and uh, a model that supports that going forward. It's a really helpful answer and point of view. Uh, at the beginning of the seriousness of COVID-19, you all organized a COVID-19 landing page. You prominently displayed uh, Zipnosis, which is a virtual care company that was offering free screening solutions for COVID-19. Members of communities who were concerned they might have COVID-19. How, how did that solution help to control volume and, and quote-unquote unnecessary utilization and, and were there other digital solutions or priorities that that you were that you kind of suddenly jammed to the the strategic four that, that helped in similar ways we're like many organizations pre-covid well we had uh, <laughs> dreams of digital extension to people's homes <laughs> and home being the hub of care dancing in our heads there wasn't uh, consumer acceptance of it, and there, quite honestly, wasn't healthcare system or provider acceptance of it either. This has forced a channel switch of significant magnitude where we were doing 20 to 30 either telephone or uh, video virtual care visits in the past per day. 20 to 30 rose to about 6,000 per day now uh, that we're doing. So um, about 1% of our care to 60% of our care being done in this regard. So there is no question, all of us know it, and all of us actually knew it before, that there has to be a channel shift that occurs in healthcare to make it more convenient for people to get the care that they need and more affordable for people ultimately too to get the care they need. So Zipnosis is one of the platforms we've used to do that in terms of screening, in terms of the digital platform. There are other platforms out there as well, but I think it's very clear that while we may go back to a certain extent, we're not going to go back all the way because people have seen the value and have accepted uh, these services. And it makes, uh, makes it clear that less bricks and mortar, you know, assets are probably needed to care well for your um, population. And also, quite honestly, to extend into their homes and, and not have the geographic disparities that have existed in the past. I, I think that hits the nail on the head. I, I have the same viewpoint. It's been a sustained change. If this had just been a week or a two-week phenomenon, it's easy to see how this would have been a blip. But I mean, I anecdotally, and I, I'm sure I've shared this on, on podcasts before, so apologize to any listeners that are hearing this for a second or third time, but uh, we have a, a family doctor who just was adamant. She would never, ever see a patient virtually. And in the second interaction we had with her during this period, 
I mean, she was she was elated with it, and and, and now she's never going back. And is that, yeah. is that an experience you've observed with your clinicians and other clinical partners? Do you see a tempering? Anybody who provides healthcare to somebody else is always going to base their activities on what the experiences of those they serve. You know, that's that's what we're about, and we're having tremendous. You know, I'm sure others are too tremendous experience. Our net promoter score for this is above 80, even though we're still a little bit clunky with the platform. You know, that still has to be improved for both providers and patients. So I would say that, yes, because uh, it's so impactful and important to the people we serve, you know, you're always your best clinician. And as a doctor, I'll say this, if you uh, follow where your patients are leading you and where your consumers are leading you. And that seems to be the case now in this respect. So I, I, I think we might revert a bit, but I don't think we're going, we're going back. I wanna, let's pivot for a second. I wanna dig in on this, this hospital finance thread. You, you started to open a little yeah. earlier in the discussion. And, and I, and again, I emphatically agree with, with the premise. I, I am a firm believer that you will always see a person or an organization make the biggest change when, when they're under a greater degree of pain uh, or stress. And, and certainly the combination of the financial impact of COVID wave one with whatever COVID wave two or other subsequent waves looks like, plus the likely enduring effects of a recession that will shift the line of business composition in, in financially unfavorable ways, that, that creates a lot of stress. So there's kind of two questions I want to ask here. Question one is, how are you thinking about sustainability and using this as a transformational moment versus a moment that might argue in favor of keeping things the same. And, and the second question would be, you know, going back to payers, are you seeing a, a, a common ally to reorganize the finances of the system to be sustainable, not just for payers, but for uh, provi provider networks that have integrity, that have adequacy, that can be accessed, it sounds like you're a believer that those things will, will happen, but how, how do you believe it will happen in Minneapolis? How do you believe that'll be reflected in Alina and, and with your partners? Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, you know, on the first question, the gravity of the financial is uh, huge. I mean, David, when we were, we were about $4.4 .4 billion organization and you know, in April, when we were cut off from scheduled surgeries, appropriately so, backed the governor completely on that. So we had made room for what was looked to be a huge surge in the near future on, on patient. But because of how the community reacted and how the policy leaders responded, we at least had a blunting of that, so we had more time to prepare. So we were a huge believer in that, but we were also losing $3 million or so a day. And that's a pretty tough place to be in. I, I said, now, you know, we've got some of the scheduled cases back in. In fact, we just a few weeks ago caught up on our, all our cancer-related surgeries. So anybody who used elective surgery, I just can't stand that that term got, got out there as an aside because those were needed surgeries. But now we're back to, you know, going from $3 million of loss a, a day to probably half a million. It's weird to feel better about that, right? So I just <laughs> want to say that the gravity of the financial um, situation is not lost on us at all. I think that the worry that I have is that we might, not, uh, we might miss an opportunity that we have right now to deal with a new care model in a different way. So for example, right now, telemedicine visits are reimbursed at the same as in-person visits. That's one good policy change that was made. 
what happens when all of a sudden telemedicine visits are reimbursed again at a much lower rate? And what will we do? Will we move into them because that's where the future needs to go for affordability and convenience and care and avoiding disparities in geography or otherwise with people? Or we'll move back to, oh, well, we're going to get paid for the bricks and mortars in-person appointment, so let's double down there. I think we've got some things to wrestle with for sure. So we're thinking about this in the near term, what do we need to write the ship, but also in the longer term, how do we need to point the ship? And how do we wrestle with those things that are at odds with each other, like the example I just mentioned? So that's what we're trying to do is try to get us back on financial footing. You know, for not-for-profit healthcare, all the finances mean is our ability to reinvest in the care and our team members. That's what it means. So how do we get back on financial footing to do that? Well, not ceding to the easy fixes of that that have uh, gotten in the way of us doing things differently. And so, you know, community access hospitals, you know, maybe you have another one close by with another organization that's serving the community well. How do you collaborate on those opportunities rather than just getting with the drug effect of having those rates come through uh, a community access piece? We're going to have to wrestle with those things. And now's the time to do that, I would say for sure. And then on your second question, David, absolutely, at least in this geography, we already, just prior to COVID, formed a big agreement with a payer to move towards value for all populations over a certain time period, and them giving us the tools to do so. We have another payer, a major payer in our uh, geography that's wanting to go early on discussions to do the same thing. And then I think the discussion I had with the CMS administrator uh, saying that CMS wants to move there. If all of these things, we're going to get a tipping point where everybody's moving in this direction and that will benefit the care that we're able to provide for sure. I think and I hope you're right and I, and I hope that you're right at scale across the country. It, you know, Back to an earlier part of the discussion, we know what to do um, as it pertains to payment, care models, enabling efficient care models, so on and so forth. To actually get to that level of transformation, you know, it's kind of one of three things. It's either the system decides to change itself, or we've demonstrated we're incapable of doing that if things are, are in the status quo, or it's inviting government in to do that. And, and we know that in many ways, government is uh, not as capable of doing that at scale. And that, that's obviously a, a point of political debate. So I don't mean that as an ideological statement at all. And then the third is that there's some exogenous events that... Yeah. Uh, that, that begins to influence and shape how you know self-interested organizations or self-interested individuals, not saying that's you, make those decisions. And and I, I just feel like there's not ever gonna be a better moment than the current moment to be able to do that on our own. I I totally and 153% agree with you, David, on that point. So so I think you're right. I think the time is now. Let's use no ordinary time to good purpose. Yes. The deal. And you, and you told me you were, you were, you thought a lot about that Doris Kearns Goodwin book. So I think yeah. it, it is aptly titled for so many reasons. Well, well, Penny, let me, let me ask you one final question here as we wind down. And uh, for, for those that, for those that are listening, they may not know your history and your bio and that you were, you were hired by the system at the tender age of five years old. I'm just kidding, but, but you've, you've worked for the system for a long time. You've worked as, as a, as an OBGYN um, and you've, you've risen to the, the top of the organization as its CEO. And as, as you think about the history of the community, the Minneapolis St. Paul community, 
as you think about your history at the institution, you think about this moment and the things we've talked about, and you, and you project that out five years. And you and I are sitting back down in five years having a, a follow-up conversation. What do you believe has changed? What do you believe the system looks like that might be different than how it looks today, good or bad? Yeah, well, I, I really, you know, I think that one of the things to be in a position like this, you have to think about the good. I mean, you know, I'm in this like many and to change the system for the better so that it impacts communities and individuals' health in a much more profound way and relieves suffering. That's what we're here to do. So I think it looks different. I think it looks like home becomes the hub of care as much as technology and expertise allows. I think there's much more coordination of care across, and I think there's much more proactive stances to avoid acute care crisis uh, which now sadly we're reimbursed more heavily for than in a new arising business model that rewards us for the best possible outcomes per dollar spent. I, I think it looks more like that. Well, I, I subscribe to that and, and, I, and I share a sense of optimism that, that that's where we're going. But uh, of course, as Robert Frost penned, we have many miles to go before we sleep. And so um, <laughs> I'm glad to know, I'll declare for you, Penny, that you'll be at the helm five more years and we can have that discussion. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking, for, I'm looking forward to that, David, and what it, what it means for the people we serve and quite honestly for this country and the world, so thank you. Well, Dr. Penny Wheeler, thank you so much for um, being gracious with your time and the work you're doing in the community and for sharing uh, some of your insights today. Great, thank you, David. <laughs>